A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football, and Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice Platform. Ericsson's scoring at Stamford Bridge on Saturday was one of the feel-good moments of the season. But how relevant was it in the grand scheme of things? Was Brentford's 4-1 win a blip or a warning of worse things to come? We'll know soon enough because Real Madrid and Carlo Ancelotti are at the bridge on Wednesday night. It's the tie of the round. So Seb, the Champions League and FA Cup double is still on for Chelsea. But is it realistic? FA Cup, I, I still think they're uh, in with a very decent shout. Champions League, I think it's going to be a bridge too far this season. I watched the game on Saturday and it was, I don't think I've seen Chelsea midfielders chasing the play quite that often in a game, particularly not at home, particularly not a side of, of Brentford standing. Also, I know it was a back four at the weekend, but goodness, there was some chaotic moments in that in that Chelsea defence as well. And so I look at that and I factor in Karim Benzema and you worry, don't you, really? I think sort of Real Madrid are not kind of, this is not a vintage Real Madrid, but there are some really, really interesting parts in their, in their forward line. Like Vinicius Junior has evolved as a player tremendously over the last year, 18 months, become a really, really classy operator, particularly in Europe, a difference maker in games of the high standard. So I think this will prove a, a bridge too far because I I know the away goals rule has gone, so it's not going to matter really if Chelsea concede a couple of times as long as they can take some kind of lead to the Benabar, but they are going to lead, have to lead when they go out there, I think, um, and I don't see that happening. In these sort of big elevated occasions, Tony, we, we tend to look to and at the coaches themselves Thomas Tuchel, he has this almost measured pressing style. Is that suited to a game like this Madrid game? Good question. I mean, when they knocked them out of the of the Champions League in the, in the semis last season, they they actually quite happily let Madrid have possession in, in both games. Madrid dominated possession in both games and Chelsea, to a large degree, played on the counter-attack. That kind of speaks to what Tuchel does a little bit in these games. Like you say, a measured press rather than a particularly high press. I, I'm 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 with Seb on this. I I just this is not a vintage. It's an old Madrid team, if not in the most in the most part. But they're a team that know what they do. They know what they are, and Vinicius does add that little bit of stardust to it. Chelsea are going to have to play much much better than they did against Brentford at the weekend. They've actually they actually had six straight wins before that, but they're not on fire. And those wins, two of those were against. Championship teams in the FA Cup, some relegation teams, Burnley and Norwich in the Premier League. It just it feels like they're not a team, particularly with all the pressures in the background at the moment. It feels like they're just not a team set up in the greatest of form to play in these massive games. Question marks about Madrid as well. They took an absolute tonking by Barcelona, didn't they, in the in La Liga a couple in El Clasico a couple of weeks ago. So you wouldn't say that either team are particularly flying at the moment, but there just seems to be slightly more convincing moves around Madrid than there are around Chelsea. Problems up front, of course, still for Chelsea. Yeah, speaking of that, Seb, you know, some pretty enduring questions about Lukaku. Do you think patience might be running thin with him? Timo Werner, when's enough's enough, really? Tuchel isn't the sort of manager to, to shirk the big decisions, is he? No, he isn't. Lukaku is a really interesting one to me because I, if you go back to the beginning, beginning of the season, end of the summer, 
And he was very much presented as the missing piece and as a transfer, which, you know, straight arrow, couldn't go wrong. But I've always thought with him that you have to keep Romelu Lukaku happy, like emotionally happy. You need to make him feel like he's being positioned to succeed and he's not being positioned to fail. And at Chelsea, there's always been a kind of, there's always been a slight confusion as to why he was bought. Because if this was the reason, if this was kind of the usage that was imagined when they paid, what, nearly £105 million for him, it's kind of baffling looking back. And I think if you if you look at his, okay, we in the media, we, we get obsessed about body language and we you know read too much into it. But I watched him when he came on on Saturday and that did not look like a happy player. It looked like someone who didn't really want to be there. He wasn't kind of convinced by his own role in proceedings. And this is, yeah, like you say, Mike, this is kind of, this is the consequence of having someone like Thomas Tuchel as as your head coach. He's not afraid to leave out a big signing. Same is true of Timo Werner. Werner, obviously a, a bit of a different case because it's never really worked for him. I would say that um, from a kind of a Bundesliga perspective, I, I think Werner was missold to fans in this country. I think he was seen as a goal scorer, as a pure number nine. Werner has always had a bad miss in his locker. If you go back to his Leipzig days, he's scored a lot more goals and he was clearly, you know, operating from a higher point of confidence, no doubt about that. But at the same time, he's not Luis Suarez, you know. It's not It's not the forward that they bought. He's got a big locker to miss from by the sounds of it, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, but also, but also, like, if you, if you have the range of options at Chelsea, that, that Chelsea do and that Tuchel does, if your if your claim to a, a starting position is just well, I'm pacey and I'm a facilitator and I do the secondary parts of forward play quite well, I don't think that's a strong enough argument. It's not to say that he doesn't do those things or that that kind of argument is um, uh, you know, it's false or that his worth is illusory. It's just that he doesn't have a strong enough claim within the company at the top of the pitch. Basically, mm. there does seem to be change afoot on and off the field, doesn't there at the bridge, Tony Christensen's already committed to Barcelona and although Aspilicueta's option has been taken up it does seem that Rudiger's going to be on his way. Aligned to that you've got the wider implications of the ownership issue. I suppose let's look at it. It's a question in two parts really. One, is this Chelsea team at a key stage of its evolution and secondly, and I'd like you to also answer this Seb, is a chance being missed here to create a new ownership model that is, okay, will be money-driven, but not money-dominated? Well, so I'll start on, on the football stuff. Aspilicueta has been a great servant for Chelsea and has been a, a real talisman, but he's getting on. And I, I don't think, in terms of the team maintaining its position where it is, I don't think signing him to an extra season has a huge impact on the field. Sorry to say, Rudiger is the one who does because he is currently something of a talisman for him, isn't he? Everyone, we talk about Thiago Silva being a brilliant defender, but he's also 38 and can't go on forever. Rudiger is 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 the man at the back there who, who often drives the team forward, comes forward with the ball, drives into midfield, and, and as we know, isn't afraid to take a shot. And he's also just at the heart of everything Chelsea do, whether with the ball or, or, or involved in, in kind of emotional moments. So losing him would be a huge thing. Christensen obviously hasn't been a regular starter, but rarely lets them lets them down. So difficult to see to see him being replaced. They do look light at the back. This was always going to be a tricky period, bearing in mind the contract situation in normal circumstances. In the current circumstances, it starts to look potentially catastrophic because just uncertainty completely reigns. And even if Seb, Seb will come into it on the ownership, from my side of view, my point of view, I don't know what this new model is. While there are other clubs still spending huge amounts of cash, and there are doing that, why does it change? The Chelsea fans will demand a replica ownership in terms of money and possibility, if not nationality. But the question with that is, where does that money come from, if not from, in the current climate, kind of a morally dubious sovereign state? You know, even a club like Liverpool, who have quite kind of boring American owners with lots of money, but they still don't have the money to compete at the top end with historically Chelsea or Manchester City, PSG, of course. So, I mean, it's it's, it's a great question to say, well, OK, let's have a look at a new ownership model. But while there are still super states out there, super clubs out there, it's difficult to see where that comes from for a club like Chelsea. When we're talking about a new model, we're obviously talking about you know, a degree of fan influence or if not ownership, which is probably unrealistic in these circumstances. 
But where do Chelsea go? Oh, do the fans actually care? You see, that's the, you know, all they see is just a big bucket of money, isn't it? So. Well, it's really difficult. I mean, there's no sort of one Chelsea opinion about this, no sort of a consensus from you know the fan group. What I would say is that whenever you have, when you have a club that's been bankrolled by a benefactor for 20 years, and whenever that person's wealth has allowed the club to buy whatever players they want, appoint whichever head coach they want, allow them to chuck an era into the fire and start a new one within the, you know, the, 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 a quick flourish on a check. You know, as soon as you have that, it becomes very, very difficult for a fan base to accept anything else. If the argument is, right, Abramovich is gone now, let's have responsible ownership, let's have self-sufficiency, let's make sure that Chelsea only ever spend what they make. You're not going to sell that to this fan base, are you? Because it it just can't happen like that. It's a the toothpaste out of the out of the tube argument, I'm afraid. So I don't know. And I I it's interesting, Mike, because I, I don't know what Tony thinks about this, but whenever I hear arguments about golden shares or independent regulation, a lot of fans seem to make those arguments with their rivals in mind when it comes to, right, well, we're going to lead the way with this. We're going to be the ones who show that this different type of responsible ownership is possible. It goes a little bit more quiet. Yeah, that's the nature of the game. That's not aimed at any one fan base. It's just the nature of tribalism. It's a, the game has become, I mean, I, I, I think it, what, what sums it up really is the way fans behave in the summer because to most people, football is a game, but there's a whole different community who see the transfer market as a different sport and what you're able to spend, who you're able to buy. It doesn't matter where they fit in. doesn't matter, you know, what kind of person the player is. doesn't matter. It, it just, it's, it's the, it's, the pure capitalism of it and with that as a context <laughs> agreeing to anything else agreeing to any other type of ownership model i don't know how it happens i dearly hope that it does i don't see how it happens yeah i suppose you, you, you do have some clubs well all clubs have distinct images or characteristics you know i'm thinking here tony of atletico madrid you know we've got a bit of a madrid double this week rail on wednesday atletico at manchester city on tuesday that team if not the club itself is an emotional reflection of their coach diego simeone now he lost his father last week there was a very very poignant image of him just before the match that will be one assumes a powerful source of motivation for him do you think he's coach who could exploit Pep Guardiola's idiosyncrasies I think without question I actually actually you, you said that Chelsea Real is a tie of the round earlier Mike I probably disagree I think Atletico Atletico City is a tie of the round just, just because of the possibilities kind of Chelsea Real we've seen before we'll probably see again this is yeah I love, I love that's got stardust I think anything to do with Real Madrid has always got stardust for me yeah I, I, I agree with that but I'd still I mean I won't be watching Atletico City for obvious reasons but um, I'll still be keeping <laughs> still be keeping a very close eye on it obviously Atletico did buy in in the, in the semi-finals back in 2015-16 which was Pep's last crack with, with, with Bayern Munich we know Atletico can spoil English teams' parties. They did it with Liverpool back in the day, not too long ago. Did it with Man United in, in the last round. And, and Simeone, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't need any extra motivation. He doesn't need any extra emotion. I think the death of his father will definitely add to that. And it will add another layer of emotion to what is an already massive game. Atletico are a horrible team to play against, aren't they? they you absolutely love to watch them if they're playing a team you don't like. You absolutely hate to watch them when they're playing a team that you support in the in the group stage early this season. They did an absolute number on Sadio Mane. who had to be taken off. They were so in his face. They haven't actually won a home game in the Champions League yet this season, I was seeing. So it might actually be in City's favour that the first leg is at, is at their place. But you're right, they're, they're a complete reflection of Simeone. His obituary seems to have been written at Atletico so many times, but he's won two league titles. Before he arrived, they'd won one in the best part of 40 years. They finish in the top three almost every season. They love having a crack at Real and Barca at home. They love having a crack at the bigger teams in Europe. This is an absolute potential banana skin for Manchester City, who have pedigree going out to significantly inferior teams in this competition. You'd probably excuse the final last season, but the previous three seasons, they were so far so much better than Liverpool, Tottenham and Leon on paper and and in terms of results and managed to mess it up. They've got this. Atletico have this gnarly spine, don't they? Oblak, Jimenez, Coke, Suarez. 
Jao Felix is beginning to look like the player that they thought he might be when they when they signed him. So everything points to it being quite difficult for City. They'll now prove me wrong and win eight 0 over the two legs, of course. But um, I think it's a great great tie. Yeah, well, Felix, two more goals in a four one home win against Alavesh at the weekend. You know, at twenty two, he's probably finally living up to that price tag, isn't he? One hundred and thirteen million, Seb. Yeah, for my money, Mike, I'd say he's currently the best player in the Liga. Maybe, uh, well, I watched Pedri play against Sevilla last night, so it's close. Let's call them joint for them. Fabulous performance. Jao Felix, I've always thought a little bit of it was probably living up to the price tag because to go from Benfica to Atletico Madrid with that amount of money around your neck, that's a, that's a tough ask. It almost felt at times that he'd arrived at Atletico at the wrong time. Also, they weren't quite sure what to do with him. I think he's a centre forward. Probably not in the kind of the, the kind of Orthodox 442 1990s sense, but I think he you want him at the top of the pitch around another forward. Playing him with Luis Suarez at this point in Suarez's career seems like a, a really nice dynamic. Also, there's some really interesting things happening around and behind him. I really like Thomas Lamar. I think Lodi, the fullback, is an excellent player. Like I think there's some just I, I think Atletico, like we said actually about Real Madrid, not a vintage Atletico Madrid because there are a few issues in defence. Yano Black, I think, is for a while was probably the best goalkeeper in the world. He hasn't had the greatest season. A couple of good games over the last couple of weeks, but not a great season. But Jean-Felix, is, he's developing a slight kind of talismanic quality. And uh, it's it's almost um, it's kind of a simplification, I guess. But it's like a, it feels like there's a, he now has a kind of conviction in his own abilities. Like he belongs to this stage. Like he is someone that should be a difference maker in this kind of Champions League tie. And you're seeing that in the league or on a regular basis. Just with reference to that Guardiola issue, because Atletico Madrid have got to keep keep him awake at night. Because I remember that 2016 game against Bayern Munich. And it's the it's the kind of the archetypal Guardiola overthink moment. It's the leaving Muller out. It's the you know, it's the kind of the precursor to, I don't know, not playing any holding midfielders against Chelsea in last season's final or, you know, the back three the year before that. You know, and it's kind of it's a really interesting, actually, pointless is in the direction of Jonathan Wilson's fine, fine article over the weekend in The Guardian, where he just talked about how there's a kind of a flawed element to Guardiola's thinking and the kind of the the way his experience works against him and it kind of his genius sort of sabotages his own progress within the game. And it's a very, very interesting dynamic. And it's it's almost, it almost creates a second opponent because obviously Man City are going to be facing Atletico Madrid, but in a way, Guardiola is kind of facing himself. Because if you look at City's form and you look at City's season, there's really no reason why they would lose to a uh, an underpowered Atletico Madrid. And yet, because it's Guardiola, there's that element of doubt. There's that little question mark. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I've heard of sort of football through the looking glass, but I've never <clears throat> never thought about football looking at the uh, at the mirror. <laughs> um, with with City, an efficient win at Burnley, Tony. Which City will turn up? Do you think? They're not unlike Madrid and Chelsea. We talked about earlier. I don't, I'm not sure City's form is that great, and I think if, if you speak to if you speak to City fans, I don't think they're massively enamoured with a lot of the way they've played in recent times. They're churning out results. They, they, I mean, the game was, you don't want to disrespect Burnley, but at one after five minutes, you didn't see anything other than a City win on Saturday. And that's often the case. They often score early and then and then throttle teams. So it's not like it's not like they're, they're struggling to get wins, but they're just not playing with quite the same fluency or, or flair that we've seen from them in recent seasons, I don't think. De Bruyne got kind of a trademark thrashing home early on and has got seems to have plenty of juice left in the in the tank for this season. But again, I was chatting to City fans at the, before the weekend and, and they were saying that, again, at the moment he's playing more as an eight and actually they think that his best form and City's best form has come with him in that kind of false nine position in recent times in the last couple of seasons. So that it hasn't worked quite as well with him as an eight. I mean, it looks to me to be <laughs> it still works pretty well. But again, it is, are they playing with... I mean, this, and this might actually play into their hands. If if, they're, if if Pep isn't as convinced, then he may not change... He may not decide to play around with things he may just say well this is what we're doing at the moment let's just stick to what we know that might that might work for them against as Sepp says an Atletico team that is that is kind of doing well without being necessarily vintage <sighs> I, I, I kind of you want you want to see Atletico go there and and and, and frustrate them and and see what see if they can frustrate City and get them to make mistakes and get them on the counter but I st- you still look at the tie you still think over two legs City will have too much agree with that said yeah I, I i think so i i i think 
if you put a couple of those Atletico Madrid players back in their prime, I think it's someone like Suarez, but also if you if you reinstated a prime era Simeone defence, you know, the, the proper rugged defence that he used to rely on and depend upon and which took him to Champions League finals in the past, I would quite like Atletico to uh, upset the Atletico. But no, probably not. City just looked very, very strong this season. What role do you think, Seb, will Raheem Sterling play? Because under Guardiola, he's almost a, you know, an, an either-or type player. He, he's been that sort of goal-scoring winger cutting in. At the weekend, he was playing quite wide, wasn't he? Yeah, in this kind of game, I see him... I kind of liken him to to the way Guardiola used to use Pedri when he was at Barcelona. To me, Sterling, at his best, it's like water. He flows into gaps. He finds space. I don't think City are going to go and win this game 8-0. But I think if you if you, if you you picture in your mind the classic Manchester City goal under Guardiola, generally speaking, you probably imagine Raheem, Raheem Sterling scoring it. And that's his role. It is a, he is the kind of the, the punctuation at the end of the, the classic City move. I think he'll be more internal. I think you'll see him a lot in the penalty box. I think you'll see him in close proximity to the Atletico centre-halves because... He's a problem. If you're if you're a centre-half and you're dealing with a centre-forward, probably an attacking midfielder somewhere in there, maybe a false nine under certain conditions. If you're dealing with a wide forward who likes to penetrate the penalty box and who likes to be inside the six-yard box or back post, that is a problem, like a numerical mismatch, but, you know, an awareness issue. Um, and so that's really his value in this kind of game. And also, actually, it, it become his value for England too. Certainly, I think we saw that in the European Championship over the summer. But that's what he's good at. His, his timing is so good. His awareness is so good. His anticipation of how a move is going to develop is so good. It makes him the perfect Guardiola player in many ways. Seb, do you prefer him on the left or the right? Sorry, Mike, I'm interrupting, but this is an interesting one for me. I, I, I think left, Tony, just because I, I don't want to see him trying to beat a fullback on the outside, Tony. I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure he can do it. I just like to see him move into positions where he can shoot or where he can create space. And I think that the, the, from the left, I think he causes a little bit more displacement. Uh, whereas on the right, I think you're kind of encouraging him maybe to be uh, it's like more uh, like a, an orthodox, old-fashioned winger. And I I don't know, it just feels like a waste of his abilities in many ways. Bayern, you know, you talked, Tony, about you know, the the impact that that, that uh, 2016 defeat probably had on Pep's psyche. What about Bayern 2022? Nine points clear in the Bundesliga. they still the likeliest non-Premier League winners, do you think? Yeah, they are. We, I mean, we talk about this every time. Every time the Champions League comes up, we, we talk about kind of the big three in England and Bayern, don't we? As the likely final four, and of course that that could still happen. There, there are there are certain question marks. I mean, nine points clear in the Bundesliga, you'd expect that. That seems to be par for the course for them. And there have been question marks over over recent seasons about their ability to stay competitive in the latter stages of the Champions League when the Bundesliga is kind of tied up early. That really shouldn't be a problem. And I don't think Julian Nagelsmann will let it be a problem. They're mixing it up formation-wise. I was, I was looking at their form this season. They, they, they tend to switch between a back three and back four, often depending on who's available and who's fit. Uh, Nicolas Sula will likely be missing, I think, from, from this VRL tie. So that looks like it, they might start with a back four with Upa Makano and, and someone else. Alfonso Davis has been out for a few months so that they lose his penetration out wide. When they do start with wing-backs, Often they're playing attackers there, so Kingsley Coman and Serge Gnabry. So there is the question mark about whether they can, whether opposition can get in behind them. But then again, they get Salzburg in the last 16 and Villarreal, who for all the qualities they've shown and the resilience they've shown to get into the last eight, it's probably the dream draw for Bayern in the knockout so far. So again, you'd probably expect them to go through. Yeah, look at that. The values of Villarreal, if we could, Seb, you know, there's going to be a big role here for Arno Danjuma, last seen at Bournemouth. You've got in Gerard Moreno, I think one of the great unsung players. Yeah. You know, at a big club, he'd be a superstar. What are the lessons that other clubs of similar stature can actually draw from Villarreal's success, do you think? I think Villarreal are a great example of the merits, of the primacy of, of the system in football over the individual. Because in this generation, okay, so look at the, the current team now. You've got players like um, Danny Parejo, Etin Capu, Giovanni Celso, Marina, we've talked about, Danjuma, Juan Foyt, uh, Jeremy Pino, Ra Abiol. Like these, these are players, some of them are good players, some of them are very good players, but they're not superstars. And I look back at that kind of uh, the, the classic Villarreal team, the Regalme team, and you think of 
like players coming there to rediscover themselves or get their careers back on track but to find themselves there's something about Villarreal as a as a place as a team as a community which speaks to a certain type of personality in football and that seems to be true across the generations Perea is a, a very good example might have been a superstar might have been he's one of the best passers in the ball still to this day one of the best passers of the ball in European football and yet you would never when listing players with that ability his name would never be the first off your tongue would it and yet he comes to Villarreal, plays brilliantly in his 30s. Capu's another one, washed out of Tottenham. Had a pretty good Watford career, but at Watford, you know, no disrespect intended, but that's not the highest of levels. Goes to a club like Villarreal, wins the Europa League. It's very interesting. And it's like, um, I don't know, I, I, I think the further we go down the line of, I don't know, a, a select group of clubs, dominating the talent pool, being able to pay buyout clauses, being able to offer absurd contracts, the more charm you see in a Villarreal and the more they become a neutral's favorite. So I I, I don't know. I, I've never been there. I've never been to the place. I've never been to their ground, but it's a, it's a, it's an easy sell. And they are, yeah, they are a very, very easy neutral's favorite in this generation and a place where sort of coaching development tactical cohesion where these things matter and where they can't always just be overpowered by individual quality and, and spending you know a, a kind of financial muscularity which is interesting obviously because you know i'm sure that in a couple of days time after Bayern Munich can run through them that won't that won't sound so terribly clever but they are a force for good in the game let's put it that way and therefore Unai Emery is the brilliant brilliant coach for that kind of club and that set of players I think what we, what he's achieved there and what he achieved previously at Sevilla kind of possibly underlines why it didn't work for him at PSG and why it didn't work for him at Arsenal. Two different clubs in different periods, at different in different stages. But I think this is a guy who brings a club together, brings a team together, brings players together in a system that works well. And if you don't get buy-in from either the club or the players, you're going to struggle. And I think that's what's happened at previous clubs for him. I don't know about you, Tony, but like I think the... You know, Emery's travails at PSG and Arsenal, although they were different, they have some similarities. I think, I wonder whether that describes something quite dislikable about the cult, the, the sort of the atmosphere in which those clubs compete and the way that this guy has succeeded in so many different ways at so many different clubs. And yet when he came to Arsenal, we seem to get fascinated and fixated on his accent and his ability to learn English. I, I thought it was kind of completely puerile. I, I thought that um, it was kind of lowest common denominator stuff. I don't think anybody that went down that road can be, be particularly proud of themselves. But it's sad, but it, it's a nice redemption story though, isn't it? To see him going back. And again, this is this is, this is is kind of what I was saying. Like you go to Villarreal, you have the opportunity to, I guess, for want of a kind of a, a more less trite expression, to be yourself and to show the merits of your kind of philosophy um, without people worrying about like your your press conference aesthetics. I think that's absolutely right. When we talk to coaches at the coach's voice, the, the words that come out all the time away from tactics and strategy are communication and clarity. Unai Emery is clearly an excellent communicator. He's done it He's done it for too long at too many clubs in too, over too many seasons to not be. But the problem with communication, both with players, sets of players, sets of ownerships and sets of fans, that it needs to work both ways. And I think at both PSG and Arsenal, maybe people didn't want to listen. Yeah, 100%. Liverpool in Lisbon against Benfica on Tuesday. You know, Benfica third in the Portuguese league, 12 points behind the leaders, Porto. They didn't look too clever in that 3-2 defeat by Braga on Friday night. You expecting a comfortable evening? Yeah, but let's see. I mean, yeah, they're not. They, Benfica don't look on the on the face of it. They, they look like the dream draw for Liverpool. I know I've said that um, Bayern will be over the moon to get Villarreal, but... Um, Benfica have their own problems. They they sat George Jesus in December. Nelson Verissimo's in as interim coach. Their, their form is okay in the league, but they are currently third of the big three. No disgrace in losing to Braga, particularly. Carlos Carvajal's doing an amazing job there, and they're kind of the best of the rest in Portugal at the moment. But that's still not the result of a team that should threaten Liverpool over two legs. They do have, I'm going to chuck out an age-old football cliche here and say the fact they've got their massive underdogs and have nothing to lose will give them a sense of threat <laughs> or danger. Formation, let's chuck in a bit of tactics. They'll probably, they look like they play a kind of 4-2-3-1. They'll sit deep and try and counter-attack, probably even at home. But um, you just can't see them causing Liverpool that much danger over two legs. Yeah, it's funny. You sometimes do follow players. I first saw Grimaldo playing for the Barca youth teams and I thought this 
this kid's going to be an absolute superstar. He's done very well. But that defence, when you think about it, you've got that centre-back pairing of Vertonghen and Otamendi, you know, all our yesterdays. You can't see that standing up to it, can you? No, it's also got um, Julian Weigel wants a kind of next big thing in German football playing in front of it in the screening role. No, I don't see it, I, just because it just doesn't have enough pace. And if you think about what Liverpool have in abundance, power, ability, skill, right, amazing cohesion in the front three, whoever plays, doesn't really matter. It's not just that those three players anymore. I'm not a Liverpool fan, so I don't run the risk of tempting any fate, but I think this will be over after the first leg, just because, well, I, I was surprised that Benfica got past Ajax, actually. I think Ajax are a better side, and I think Ajax would have been a, a tougher proposition for Liverpool, but um, yeah, Liverpool will have way too much, I would have thought. Mm. One one thing though, one thing on that though, actually, Tony's right. Like the, Benfica will come into this with nothing to lose and no pressure. They'll also come into it with Darwin Nunez, who's a really interesting player because like, he's one of those guys who I I, I don't want to go all kind of uh, Alfonso Alves about this, but he's one of those players that scores a lot of goals in a non-top five league, and you can equally see someone spending a load of money on him in the summer and him being a roaring success and being a massive failure and either way kind of talent. But he's very, very interesting. And he's played ever so well this season. I think I, I might be wrong on this, but I think he's he's scoring more than a goal a game at the moment, which is, um, yeah, very, very interesting and uh, will presumably provoke lots of lots of interest sooner or later. Yeah, well, he scored after coming on at halftime against Braga. I know that. Tony, what's your reading of the way Liverpool are playing now? 10 Premier League wins on the bounce. I think it's five successive clean sheets when you look at the team Klopp's got lots of options hasn't he he'll probably rotate money in the next couple of weeks yeah you would think so I mean I think the performance against Watford was was what everyone kind of expected I think Liverpool won the game without without really getting much beyond second gear Watford had a, created a couple of chances on transition in the first half but over the 90 minutes I don't think they, they really created a huge amount more this Liverpool team has the, the glory of one of the best keepers in the world. So when they do concede chances through that high line, Alisson just stands big and tends to stop most of them anyway. He didn't start Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's just back from injury into training on Saturday. He didn't start Fabinho, which I think was a, was a really interesting move. Both of those players are key to the way Liverpool play most of the time. Trent obviously going forward and Fabinho just on that ridiculous counter-press that can be so effective and it's not as effective when he's not there. So I'd fully expect Fabinho to start against Benfica. I'd be amazed if Luis Diaz, who didn't didn't appear at all at the weekend, didn't didn't start against Benfica for obvious reasons. He knows the team there. He knows the he knows the football. So I imagine he'll be effective. I wonder whether he'll leave Alexander Arnold on the bench again with Man City coming at the weekend. Gomez played really, Joe Gomez played really well against Watford. Got an absolutely brilliant assist for for Jota's opener, and obviously provides a bit of extra defensive cover, being being the centre back that he is. Mo Salah's kind of interesting at the moment. I think. Obviously, there's been so much chat around his contract and then the World Cup qualifiers. But his form has actually just dipped a little bit in, in recent weeks. I just wonder whether a little bit of fatigue is coming in. So it'll be interesting seeing what, how he goes in what is obviously a completely pivotal month for Liverpool. But I'd be amazed if he didn't start against Benfica on Tuesday. Mm. Yeah, since we're in cliche corner today, I suppose, you know, people talk about taking each game as it comes. Yeah. But in, in a week or in certainly in a spell such as this, Seb, is that actually humanly possible? Do you think, you know, no matter how important a Champions League quarterfinal is, that decisive Premier League game against Manchester City, will it be a factor, not just in the selection, but also in the psychology? Yeah, of course. Anytime you're going into a like a period of a season where you've got lots of different you know, coaching emphases, of course it's going to be because like you, I, I often think about it in terms of like what players do on a day to day basis at the training ground and and like what their instructions are and and like if you're if you're if something's built up as being the kind of the the, the crux of your season, the kind of the junction which will determine how you how you perform then you're going to have some kind of emotional lag as a result of it it's only natural and also actually i've always thought this was um not to to make this about so alex focus on man united but i've always thought that was one of the interesting things about his management how you would tell players like the classic is g-sing park we tell players six months six weeks away from a fixture right you're going to be playing in this and partly that was because someone like park was a specialist and you could rely on him to nullify certain players sure but 
it was also a way of ensuring that like you didn't have that problem with that distraction issue that kind of the, the kind of the, the many different focuses that like uh, if you say to a to a Roy Keane right you're going to be playing all four of these games then you're asking different things of that player in different situations whereas if you've got specialists for certain positions then you kind of you can alleviate that problem to a certain extent but it's one of the reasons why Mike we always get to we always get to you know January February March and we're always talking about someone doing a treble or quadruple and it seems people like me come on podcasts like this and say oh well you know you just can't see anybody beating them and yet there is always an obstacle that they run into and you can never prove it because you can never have the statistics to to back this up but it's because of exactly this it's because balancing the kind of the mental focus required to succeed across many different fronts or on many different fronts is just that difficult. Mm. You know, West Ham warmed up, if that's probably the right phrase, for the Europa League game against Lyon at home on Thursday by beating Everton or Everton beating themselves. <laughs> um, Declan Rice, Tony. Uh, David Moy says he's not for sale, supposedly. Then he starts throwing numbers around 150 million pounds is it inevitable do you think that he leaves in the summer or do you think he might hang on until after the world cup uh oh that's a good question um i'd be absolutely astounded if he didn't leave in the summer just because the level that he's playing at at the moment the performances that he's putting in week in week out in a team that that should be knackered he should be, and they're not. They seem to just they, they, they just keep on going. And you're right. You're kind of yesterday's victory probably said more about Everton than did about West Ham. But this is a team that are just they are great in the sum of their parts. But Declan Rice is probably their most impressive part. And if you're talking about big numbers, and there are still teams out there who can afford big numbers, then I think it'd be almost impossible for West Ham to say no. And I think that's probably why David Moyes is already chucking out numbers that, that sound absolutely crazy. I guess the question mark is where he goes. And I think, you know, both Chelsea and United have been mooted. There are question marks over both. Declan Rice obviously started as a kid at Chelsea and there's a certain emotional tie there, going back and playing with his, you know, best mate Mason Mount. And he would fit in. So, I mean, he fit into both teams tactically. United, there are still so many question marks about who's the manager going to be, what are they going to do with the squad, Cristiano Ronaldo, Paul Pogba, there's just, you know, Harry Maguire, there's just so many question marks. So if you're, Dave, if you're Declan Rice, you'd look at both of those clubs with the question marks around Chelsea's ownership and just thinking, are either of those clubs, do either of them say, this is progress for my career? No doubt he could play brilliantly for both. He would fit in probably in terms of the football, Chelsea are more attractive in terms of the general proposition, maybe Man United are, but neither would strike me as being absolutely perfect destinations for him. I, I quite like to see him stay at West Ham. I, I, I know I'm a realist and, I, and I, I absolutely agree with everything Tony said and I fully expect Tony to be proven right. It's just I like having strength in other parts of the league. I think Declan Rice is so entwined with this kind of um, new identity that West Ham have developed. He's such an important part. You take him out of that team and they probably drop three or four places in the league with no disrespect to the other players there. And I just think the league is better for it. Like I I, I think about 18 months ago, we were talking about Jadon Sancho and how like he just must move to Manchester United immediately because otherwise, oh goodness knows, you know, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it because football is more interesting when you have reason to to watch more than just six different teams. And West Ham's emergence from the pack, great story for David Moyes, in spite of some issues at, you know, at the club there. And it's for the betterment of English football. And I think also, if you look at what, too often I think we look at this from the from the perspective of what a club can do, or what, 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 a, what a player is entitled to go and do. Whereas in reverse, it should really be more of a kind of what a club has allowed a player to be, which is, West Ham have given Declan Rice the chance to be Declan Rice, made him an England regular, put him in the final of a European Championship. Like it's the same argument that gets made with Harry Kane, just to drag this towards being about Tottenham, just to anger some West Ham fans. But it's like, you know, with, with Kane, it, it always frustrates me. It's cause like, well, Tottenham put Harry Kane in the European Cup final, and made him captain of England, and made him a World Cup Golden Boot winner. Like, obviously, the abilities of the player is the driving factor there. I understand that. But when I grew up, like, you, you always, you always taught to believe that after a certain period, well, players just have to leave because otherwise they, you know, they, it just puts a ceiling on their developments. Just a myth. It's an absolute myth. It puts a limit on their earnings and a limit on their ability to collect certain medals. And in the modern game, it is about collecting medals, really, because you go to a certain club and you just, you kind of, it, it's like part of your signing on fee, just getting a Premier League winner's medal or a, like a La Liga winner's medal or a, you know, whatever. 
and so I just I, I want to see more people go to bat for the kind of like let's keep rice there for a couple of years what is the very worst that can happen because I if you if you think about and I'm fully aware this is turning into a little bit of a rant but if you think about what would happen should he go to I don't know Man United so let's let's put Declan Rice at Man United this summer we don't know who's going to manage Man United Man United's midfield is an absolute mess still it's got question marks in every position, with it, with the exception of Bruno Fernandes, who's signed his new contract. We don't know where Paul Pope is going to be. Is Matic staying? Is McTominay good enough? Who's the defence behind him? What's that forward line going to look like? Is Ronaldo going to stay? Like Logically, from a pure development perspective, he would be better staying at West Ham because the team is built around his strengths and a manager who believes in him, a forward line that's working ever so well, a midfield which is kind of attuned to his strengths. I think Suchek's a wonderful forward for him. I think he's a great player. Defence could probably be improved, but it's getting better. Like And a crowd that love him. Like That's the stuff that we should give more emphasis to, I think. Right, I'm done now. There you go. <laughs> what you've actually just done, so is ensure that Man United buy Suchek as well as Rice. Oh, so. I know, I know. Like you know, and they'll they'll sign Antonio and reappoint David Moyes, and like, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I just it, it frustrates me though because it's 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 like if you're if you're a supporter of a club beyond maybe five or six, it's like you're not allowed to have nice things for more than a couple of years because it, it someone's always going. Well, no, just it, Sancho's the classic example. Like I know the British Dortmund have become a little bit of a mess, but would Jaden Sancho have been better off in a football sense had he stayed at the Westfalen Stadium for a couple of years? Yes, undoubtedly. And everything has just been accelerated. So you don't get to enjoy these little moments in the game for very long now. And it's it's just sad, I think. Yeah, well, we'll finish off with a with a, a Manchester United rant, probably. Um, just in the meantime, <laughs> I just want to squeeze in a little bit about Leicester, who I thought were desperately unlucky not to win at Old Trafford. I suppose, okay, they're playing PSV at Leicester in the conference on Thursday. You know, at least, Tony, uh, when we're talking about silverware, at least Brendan Rodgers got a European trophy to aim for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's not forget they're only FA Cup winners last season. That was a huge thing for them. And I know Leicester fans who, that meant everything to them. It was their first FA Cup, wasn't it? So another trophy, two two trophies in two seasons would be would be fantastic. And we can laugh we can laugh about whatever whatever this tournament is actually called, but it's the same as any tournament. Once you get deep into it, all you want to do is win it. This is a real chance for them to build momentum in what's been a really, really difficult season for them. James Madison played really, really well yesterday, didn't he? And it looks like he's finally coming into, after after a period where both injuries and form have affected him, he's, he's coming back to somewhere close to his best. It would be really timely for him to do that at the end of this season. You know, you've put you know, West Fafana's back. I mean, he probably won't he's be. He's terrific. He's a really good player. Yeah. And actually, that, talking about talking about clubs below the top four or five having nice things, it seems that injuries can actually help them keep them for a little bit longer, can't they? Yeah. I don't think West Fafana's <laughs> going to go anywhere this summer, whereas if he'd had a full season, he'd definitely be going somewhere. He probably won't be actually at his best again this season when he'll take. He's been out for such a long time. And they are missing Wilfred Ndidi, who's so important in front in that screening role. But this is a winnable trophy. The Leicester fans will want to win it. And I think Brendan Rodgers, after the end of a difficult season, will be absolutely desperate to win it. I've got I've got a question for both of you, actually, because um, it's something that I argue with my friends about. I think Harvey Barnes should be playing for England. I know Leicester have had a really difficult period, but he's such an interesting player. Like, and he, he to me, he's an example of like, you know, we all know what the kind of the modern wide forward should look like, quick and direct and, you know, probably, you know, kind of mechanical in their movements. But like, to me, he's... Uh, He's an entirely different sort of inverted wide forward. Really, really interesting player. Like, so skillful. Like, I don't, I haven't seen a player do that kind of pass into the penalty box, move off them from the sort of diagonal, from the kind of the, the, the corner of the penalty box things, as well as probably Eden Hazard during his Chelsea pomp. I'm, I'm not comparing Harvey Barnes to Eden Hazard, believe me. I just, he's, um, he's someone that always seems to go slightly below the radar. It's interesting, but I, he's um, a really, really good player. He's somebody, do you think he'd almost fit into one of those number 10 roles at Chelsea? Are we, are we, are we, are we selling Harvey Barnes to Chelsea? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we might be. James Madison. No, I, 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 no, I, I, I do agree. I, I think he's, he is someone who, if he played for, and I, I can't believe I'm doing this, I'm actually making the argument now for why young players should be playing for bigger clubs. You, you've, you've tied me in a knot, Tony. No, I, I agree. Like if he was playing for a club of that standing, I think the perception of him would be slightly different. I just think he just does so many different things well. And, and uh, I always enjoy watching him. I think I put it that way. Like I always, whenever I watch him, I think he always does something which 
doesn't necessarily surprise me, but impresses me, whether it's a, a, a clever finish or a nice move or a good run or a nice little bit of combination play with someone like Ian Acho or Madison. Ian Acho, by the way, is, you know, also playing extremely well. But it's, uh, yeah, no, just, I, it's a fun player. Could, um, surely has some value to England at some point. Mm. Well, let's end with Manchester United then. You know, the top four finish didn't look likely even before the Leicester game. Now Tottenham and West Ham winning on Sunday makes it even less likely. I think we all agree it's a mess. There was a, a quote from Ralph Ranick which which caught my eye, Tony, a guy you, you know well. He said, Manchester City and Liverpool have been built together and recruited over a period of five or six years, all of them under the premise of how the coaches want to play. I told the board, this is what has to happen. They're not listening, are they? No, on the evidence of what we're seeing so far, they're not listening. They, they at the moment, and this heart, this breaks my heart as a Liverpool fan, but Man United and Everton have a lot of similarities. Too many coaches, too many different styles of recruitment, no central, coherent philosophy as to how they want to play on the pitch and ownership that just have a pedigree of throwing money at things without really having a huge amount of strategy. We, we've talked about Ragnick so many times. He's a guy that builds stuff. He's a guy that does stuff over a number of years. He's actually not been a coach at the top level for the majority of the, the, the last 10, 15 years. If he is there to put in place structure and functions that will develop Manchester United in the next four, five or six seasons, then he needs to have... Well, he needs to have more of an impact than it seems like he's having at the moment. And quotes like that suggest that he's not being given the license or the reign that he thinks he needs to help Manchester United develop. There are so many question marks. Anything on the pitch is is fundamentally driven by what's going on off the pitch. It seems like a mess. It still seems like they're not pulling in the same direction. The crowd's getting on the team's back. The players don't seem to be having fun. The manager certainly doesn't seem to, or the interim manager certainly doesn't seem to be having the impact that he wanted. And that all points question marks at the board in terms of what the future will be. And at the moment, just looks an absolute shambles still. Mm-hmm. How much damage, Seb, is being created already for the next manager? Well, I don't think the uncertainty helps. I, I mean, the, the thing about Ranić is I, I don't even really think of him as a head coach. I think of him as an architect. So if you're not going to listen to him when he talks about what your recruiting needs to look like, you know, who you should be appointing, you know, and instead when he goes in the summer, I don't really see the point in any of this. I think what has to happen, it's still a rescue situation. I think before you appoint Eric Ten Hag, seemingly, or like Mauricio Pochettino, whoever, whoever's coming next, I don't know. You have to create some certainty about some of these individuals. What's happening with Ronaldo? What's happening with Pogba? Like... Also, it's always something that seems strange to me when you, when you hear little stories about Man United transfer targets before you have a manager in place. How, how can that be at a sensible club? Because if you don't have a way of playing, then why are you buying to support it? That's very, very strange to me. So it just needs order. I agree completely with what Tony said. Like, Rannick is... Like, one, of, one of the telling quotes about Rannick's time at Hoffenheim was when he talked about the club being a, a blank sheet of paper. That's a translation from the German. I don't, I don't know if it's accurate, but... And that's the point, really, isn't it? Because Man United is anything but a blank sheet of paper. Of all the clubs in in English football, it is probably the most resistant to change. And you have the guy that that needs a he needs soft clay to be successful, doesn't he? So it's a very strange time at Man United, and I I, I don't know. But then we we talked earlier about what happens when big clubs reset. They write massive checks, they spend loads of money, and they hope it all goes to plan. So we we shall see. But it doesn't. I'm not filled with any hope where May Night will be next season. Also, one of the interesting things I, I felt uh, I thought was hearing um, a couple of May United players talking about their season being quote unquote dead. It's like, well, you know, you, you weren't going to win the Champions League and you're not going to win the Premier League and you weren't going to at the beginning of this season either. And yet there's still Champions League qualification up for grabs. I, I know Spurs and Arsenal have a bit of an advantage, but it's what, three points? And it feels like these players have given up. It's like a, you need a... Need a new manager, need a you know recruitment to to support him, but you also need a cultural reset at that club. I mean, that that group play not winning the Champions League. 
And so what? Because you're, you know, you're out of it in in February. That's just time to to give up. I, I just I can't agree with that. You, this is part of the rebuild. This is part of the building back process. You got to fight for fourth place. You're not entitled just to, you know. I can't do a second round. I haven't got the heart for it. But um, I, I've you know I've wasted all my energy on Declan Rice. But you, you know what I'm saying? It, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. It's it's incongruous with what with Man United's place in the in the in the landscape at the moment. This kind of well, we can't win the Champions League, oh, so you know season's over it's it's very very strange to me you're also hearing you're also hearing stuff complaints from fans about the quality of the football they're playing yeah, and, and actually yeah. genuinely yearning for the kind of chaos of some of the Solskjaer games and you just think wow uh, it's incredible that that that's where it's got to I think we all agreed didn't we and I think people nobody really disagreed that they weren't a particularly well coached set of players under Solskjaer and it turns out that, that if, if their style of football is slightly less entertaining under Rangnick, that's possibly because there's a bit more structure going on and they're, and they're playing under, they're being coached a bit more tightly. The end result may not look good, but I, I look back at the early days of Mikel Arteta at Arsenal, that was pretty drab in places. And that was simply because the players were being coached <laughs> yeah. and they were learning well, a new system. Isn't it? You know, it's a no-win situation for everyone. Now, Ranić being judged on how he does a job that he's never really been suited to. United are rudderless, and the senior management, as we've discussed, are frankly hopeless. For me, there's been no more poignant victim than Marcus Rashford. Now he spent two weeks on a training ground trying to repair the shattered remnants of his confidence, and he was promptly left out of the team without a striker. I can't figure that one out for the life of me. Regime change can't come quickly enough for him, the club and the fans. In the meantime, thanks to Seb and Tony for their European insights and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 